Hey everybody, welcome to episode 56 of the Go Get Outside podcast. This is your host, Jason Milligan. Welcome back. Welcome aboard. We are back from a mid-season break. I took a little time off to try to catch up, get ahead of the show. We did that a little bit, not quite as much as I had hoped, because it turns out right when we took that break, I learned that I had a broken wrist. So I have been contending with that, and it has distracted me from other more important things. But it is on the mend, and hopefully it will be less of a problem before the end of this year. Another side note, an important announcement here at the show. This is the first episode ever to be edited by someone other than me. Griffin Davis recently joined us at Butcherbird Studios, and he is going to be taking over many of the editing duties for this show. So I personally want to thank him because he is making my life much better. Enough housekeeping, let's get to today's show. We will be speaking with Karina Peepon. She's an artist, writer, walker, and founder of the gear shop Pangea Outdoor Supply. She and I recorded this in early September when she was fresh off the John Muir Trail, and we discussed her travels both through the art world and through the backcountry. So let us go now to Karina Peepon. Karina Peepon, and I am a artist, walker, curator, writer, and shop owner. All right, so you are Karina Peepon. I'm glad that you sent me that one link you did. Which because, one? Uh, it was a, another podcast interview you oh, had okay. done. Because the first thing he says is, Karina Peepon, yes, that's how you pronounce it. <laughs> I was, is it Pipon? Is it Paypon? I know, it's a weird and one. Peepon was never <laughs> what I guessed. I don't usually have people talk about their names or going into the history of their names, but Peepon, where does that come from? I don't think I've ever met a person named Peepon before. I wish I could give you a really knowledgeable answer, but I actually don't know much about it. I wasn't very close with my father. Uh, he actually passed away this year in February, but my uncle, his brother, tells me that he has done a little bit of genealogy on their side of the family, and he says that he believes it's Czech. Ah, so you're secretly Czech. Apparently. <laughs> and I'm glad that I could start with a question that immediately could potentially bring up past family strife. So I'm glad I could, I'm glad <laughs> I could immediately get us there. So let's talk about your history. Uh, we were talking a little bit earlier and you said you've been in L.A. for about 15 years like I have as well. So obviously you were not born here. You're not from here. You're not from the Czech Republic, no. despite your name. Where'd you grow up and how'd you grow up? What did your childhood look like? I was born and raised on Martha's Vineyard, which is an island off the coast of Cape Cod in Massachusetts. It's really well known now, I guess, primarily because of so many presidents who vacation there. When I was growing up, Martha's Vineyard was really bohemian. It still is a little bit. It's incredibly beautiful, very natural, very rustic. It's often associated with a certain kind of summer glamour that maybe is similar to the Hamptons or its kind of sister island, Nantucket. But Martha's Vineyard has a very different feel to it. It's it's quite um, wild. There are a lot of people drawn there who love nature and they're eccentric people who maybe want to live a little bit of a different kind of lifestyle. And my folks were like that. When they met 
My mother was a freshman and my father was a sophomore or junior at the Philadelphia College of Pharmacy and Science, and it was 1968. They were total hippies. Their first date was going to see The Who. They were real, like, rock and roll lovers. My mother was a very serious feminist, and they, similar to many of their peers at that time, were kind of turning their backs on types of traditional social roles that they were raised with. Whenever I think about that, it does seem odd to me that they also decided to get married, especially so young. Um, They got married before they graduated college and they went to Martha's Vineyard for their honeymoon and they just decided to stay. They definitely felt that kind of bohemian side of the island, especially the year-round residents. The year-round population there is a much more I think, eccentric kind of population than the the summer tourist crowd. It's an island populated with really special, interesting people. So I was born and raised there. I lived there year-round until I was 10. And then uh, my, my folks split up when I was, before I was even two, actually. When my father was remarried when I was around age five, he remarried into a family that owned one of the oldest day camps on the island, and it was called the St. Pierre School of Sport. The camp was really formative for me with regard to being in the outdoors, but the island as a whole really put nature kind of into my heart. You just can't really live there without feeling really connected to the outdoors. Based on what you've said so far, it sounds like a place that really was fitting for you because it hit two things which you've defined yourself as, which is a person that goes outdoors and an artist. And based on what you said about Martha's Vineyard, that seems like a large part of that community. Definitely. I would say the year-round community, especially back then in the 70s, was made up of artists, musicians, dancers, writers, many, many writers, photographers. Photographers and painters love the island because the light is very special. And writers love the island, especially back then, because they would basically get, quote-unquote, jobs as caretakers for summer homes. And they would basically live in these giant summer homes all winter, making sure the pipes don't freeze. And they could write poetry, write novels, work on dissertations, and who knows what else. And so you had this incredible intellectual community and very bohemian lifestyle with people putting their careers together piecemeal. A lot of people had lots of different types of jobs. They might have one job during the winter, one job during the summer, or different jobs during the shoulder seasons. Many people had you know, their passion projects, their creative projects, and the things that they would do to put bread on the table. And yes, the outdoors is just there. It's the kind of place where we didn't lock our doors. I was constantly in and out as a kid. My mother had a giant garden in the back where I was always picking strawberries and string beans. And it was the kind of place where my friends and I would just run around the neighborhood. So it was quite bucolic in that way. Sort of rural, small town feeling. How far removed is the island from the mainland? I wish I knew the exact mileage. I'm not quite sure, but it's you take a ferry if you're traveling. So it is not connected by a bridge. You, no, you no. Have to ta- um, okay. It's about a 45-minute ferry ride. You can also get in and out by plane. There's been ideas floated for a bridge over the years, but I, I just don't imagine they could do it. It's a long distance. Well, those two things, like the difference between a ferry and a bridge, right? Yeah. It completely affects the, the attitude of how you live there. Definitely. Because if there's a storm, if there's a big nor'easter or a hurricane or anything like that, you're on the island, cut off. 
there's definitely a way of life there that is always kind of under the surface that really requires you to set food aside, you know, make sure you have fuel, things like that. It's so you do have this relationship to nature and the possibility of being cut off from the conveniences of modern life quite easily. Probably a, a different sense of self-sufficiency yeah. also than people 45 minutes away. I think so. I would say that people on the island, especially year-round folks, people are avid gardeners, they're hunters, they're fishing, of course, is a giant part of life on the island. So people smoke food and freeze food and can food. And that's something that I grew up with for sure. So it's interesting because, so you and I both apparently moved to Los Angeles around about the same time. I, I grew up in Louisiana in a place I don't regret growing up. Like I had a great childhood. I like the person that it made me and my experiences there, but I knew from an early age, I would not live there mm. as an adult. Mm -hmm. And it was known, it was known, oh, when he grows up, he's moving. And part of that is just that all the things that interested me in life, I felt like were separate from where I grew up. I felt like not necessarily an outsider, but just a person whose opportunities were not available mm. there. But for you, a lot of what exists in Martha's Vineyard coincides with your personality. There's a large arts community, there's an outdoor community, and you left. So what was the reason that you left? I was still very small. My folks had split up. My mother was making some moves in her career, and she wouldn't be able to really grow professionally on the island. She was the uh, chief pharmacist at the hospital, and she had gotten to a point where professional development opportunities weren't going to really come her way beyond that. And personally, I think it was really hard, too. Looking back from my perspective as a 44-year-old person now and thinking about what it must have been like for her to be raising me as a single mother, as a very young single mother too, in a community that's so isolated, I can only imagine that it was extraordinarily difficult. And we've talked about it where she and I are very close. And so I know from her directly that it was really challenging socially just to meet people, to date people. So for her, I think she was really called away to the bigger world. Once she healed from the trauma of the separation with my father, and also became successful in her career. And once I got a little older, she could really see that for her to excel in her life and kind of reach her potential, it would really be necessary for her to make a move. And I know it wasn't very easy for her because... I think she worried that I would have a hard time adjusting to making such a big move too. But I really admire her for having done that because it was certainly, certainly the best thing that she needed to do for her life. Then I continued to go back every summer to be with my father. He was now actively a part of the summer camp that I mentioned before. And so the summer camp was the perfect place for me to be every summer. I had my life on the mainland with my mother during the academic year. And then I would go back to the vineyard, which really felt like my home and spend probably almost four months there. I feel like summers were so much longer when I was a kid. My friends who have kids now, their, their summers are so short, but I feel like my summers were really long and we had two full months of summer camp, but I would go out quite early before camp opened. And then I also would stay 
a little while after camp closed to help. The family didn't live in the camp building year round. We only lived there during the summers. So there was a big process of opening up the building in the spring and closing it down after the season. One of the main activities that we did at the camp was sailing and the boats needed to come in and out of the water, needed to be made seaworthy. So it it was just like a giant process getting the camp ready for, for all the campers to come in the summer. It was just a day camp. So the family lived at the building and the kids, uh, the campers would all be there just during the day from, I don't know, roughly nine to five or something like that. So then it reverted to our family home. Once the campers would go home, the ping pong tables, the sailboats, the archery targets, all the different activities that we had for the camp, that was just what we would do for hobbies (laughs) on the off hours too. Basically, we were always playing games. I continued to go back and as I became a teenager, I was a camp counselor and I went to college in Colorado. And I think that was the last summer that I went to Martha's Vineyard. And then since then, I've only been back a handful of times. And for me, I did think about potentially living there over the years. My mother kept my childhood home specifically for that reason. If I wanted to live there, she wanted to make that available to me, which it was so special. And there were certainly many times in my life as I started college and then made various life transitions through my early adulthood, there were definitely times when I seriously considered moving back there and wondered if if it was the right time for me to do that and what would I do if I did live there. And ultimately, I decided to continue living in cities. Being involved in the art world, especially the way in which I'm involved in it and the type of art world I'm involved in, that art world is very much located in the major cities around the world. And so that kind of career path has kept me in places like San Francisco and Los Angeles. Yeah, let's talk about that. So let's hit the specifics of what exactly you do in the art world and where that has taken you. You mentioned San Francisco, and obviously you're in Los Angeles now. Uh, So let's go over that a little bit. I always was an artist. I never really thought of art as a thing that one would do to make money, that it's something Certainly not. (laughs) Yeah, well, now we know that it's really not. It was something that I didn't really think think of as a job. My folks and my grandparents and most of my extended family, they have sort of quote-unquote regular jobs. My parents were pharmacists. My grandfather was an account manager at Kraft Foods. There were very normal lifestyle paths in my family's life. But I do have one aunt who's an artist and she always encouraged me to draw and paint and make things. And that's extraordinarily valuable to me that she always encouraged me to explore that side of my personality. And I would spend time with her. I often visited her in the springtime. I would go stay with her for a week or two and she and I would draw and paint and make collages and do all kinds of things. And she always gave me art supplies for my birthday and she always fostered that in me. She was a teacher. So she wasn't a quote unquote professional artist. So that wasn't something that I knew even really existed. But I have a couple of very strong memories that have to do with art and really helped my formation as an artist. My mother took me to Washington, D.C. for a trip when I was maybe 10 years old. And I remember standing on the base of this Alexander Calder sculpture and just having this incredible moment of kind of feeling so overwhelmed by this giant metal sculpture that was this beautiful color of orangey red. And that was a moment where I understood that art 
was an enterprise that had to do with objects, but mostly had to do with ideas. Of course, my 10-year-old brain didn't have that articulated flash of of a epiphany, but there was a, a bodily sort of feeling. On the same trip, I also got to see this very small sculpture. It was a sculpture that was in a vitrine, and the pedestal was this the height of my body. So my face was right at the same level as this bronze sculpture. And I can't for the life of me think of the artist now, but we were at the Hirshhorn. There was all this natural light coming into this corridor type gallery. Again, there was this moment of understanding that a person had made this thing. I think that it's really easy for us to go through life not understanding that everything we use in day-to-day life is conceived of, designed, and made by a person. It's really easy to just ignore that or forget it or never know that in the first place. And I had this moment with art where I really understood it as a human endeavor and understood it as humanity. And those types of childhood moments, I think, have really stuck with me in this undeniable way. For instance, when I first went to college, I was studying psychology. There were external forces that were telling me to take a typical career path where you understand that here's your education, here's what your education will lead to, and then you will get this career, and then this career will lead you to have this house that you will buy and this family that you will raise, and then there's your life, and you wrap it up with a bow. I feel like there were external forces that were making me think that that's what I should do, and I never knew there was such thing as art school until I basically got so tired. I I just got so exhausted when I was in college. My first two years of college were really difficult. I struggled with depression and I had gone to a really intense high school and I wound up in college just feeling like I didn't know really what I was doing there. I think I put on a good front of saying like, okay, I'm going to become an analyst and I'm really interested in psychology and this is what I'm going to do, but felt so exhausted and so overwhelmed by college. I finally dropped out. It wasn't until I dropped out of school that I found out there was such a thing as art school. And when I realized that existed, That was another type of epiphany. That's how I wound up in San Francisco. I knew I wanted to continue West, so I looked at art schools only on the West Coast. I applied to three of them, and I got into one, and that was the San Francisco Art Institute. I guess I moved to San Francisco in the summer of 1994. And correct me if I'm wrong, but you work as a curator. So I worked as a museum curator for about 10 years. I now am a director at an art gallery. Explain to everybody the differences between those things. A museum curator is the person who makes the shows that you see when you go to a museum. So every time you go to LACMA or MOCA or The Hammer, you walk in and you see all the artworks installed in certain ways in the galleries. Someone has to make the decisions about where those artworks are situated in the room. Someone also has to make decisions about which artworks are there for you to view. And someone also has to write all the texts that you see on on the walls in the museum. So the curators are the people who do all of that. And 
that was something I got into after graduate school. I was really interested in the function of museums and I was interested in the display of art and gradually made my way into museum work and was extraordinarily lucky in my career. I was initially working at at MoCA, which is the Museum of Contemporary Art here in Los Angeles, which has one of the world's best contemporary art collections. I worked there for five years and then I worked at the Hammer Museum at UCLA for five years. In both museums, I was an assistant curator working both in tandem with other curators to help them realize their exhibitions, but also doing my own exhibitions. And so then three years ago, I became a director at Honor Fraser Gallery, which is also here in Los Angeles. So the difference is primarily that museums are nonprofit institutions and galleries are for-profit stores, essentially, where anyone is welcome to walk in and say, I'd love to buy that painting and we'd love to sell it to you. So um, (laughs) that is the big difference. I also have a quite special role at Honors Gallery. Typically, a gallery director is primarily responsible for sales because of the fact that I had this institutional background that has much more to do with the content of the art and the interpretation of the art. When I knew I wanted to leave institutions and move into the commercial sector, I knew I wanted to translate those curatorial skills into the commercial realm. So my role at Honors Gallery is quite similar to my role as a curator in a museum. However, in this case, rather than devise ideas for exhibitions, I work with our program of artists whom we represent and work with them developing their exhibitions. And then I also work with Honor on developing the program. For instance, over the past three years, we've added several artists to that list of artists that we represent. And that is a whole other different type of aesthetic enterprise that is not dissimilar from making a museum exhibition, but it differs in one primary and major way, which is that When you make an exhibition at a museum, that exhibition is temporary. It typically lasts for, let's say, three to six months, and then you move on to the next show. Whereas at a gallery, that relationship with those artists is meant to last a lifetime. And so it's a very different kind of relationship. It has to do with fostering that artist's work in their studio and their career beyond their studio and really span a very long time. Yeah, I I think it's interesting because when you go to a museum exhibit, there is the story of each individual piece, right? And then there's your interaction with the piece. But I I think something that maybe people don't take the time to think about is the fact that someone has curated this, that someone has sat down and said, this is our theme and I need to pick from whatever is available that I can pick from, we can afford or whatever different criteria have to decide that and put those things together and then choose the way that we present those to the public. When you're, you're going to the exhibit, you've got the individual pieces as well, but then also the exhibit itself as It's almost like a separate piece of art or a separate story in and of itself. And if you stop and break that down and look at how those things that are linked, then there's an even deeper meaning you can derive from those things. Yes, hopefully. (laughs) That's your goal, correct? (laughs) If it's done well, yes. Well, and, and there are different approaches. There is a whole side of museum practice and curatorial practice that is devoted to theories of curatorial practice. So every curator has a different style. There are curators whose style is quite apparent, and that curator's voice is very much a part of an exhibition. There are other curators who they strive to actually be invisible 
And that was really how I was trained in a way is to have a very strong idea, but then allow the artworks to speak for themselves as much as possible. And the way I was trained as a curator, there's a sort of ethos in which the curator's name is not even on the exhibition. It's almost anonymous. The place where the curator's name might be more present is on a publication. If if the exhibition is accompanied by a publication, then of course the, the, uh, the book would be edited by that curator and the curator would likely produce an essay for that catalog. But for instance, on the didactic text introducing the exhibition, it's quite likely that the curator's name would not even be there so that the artist or artists in the exhibition would be the ones who really are hi- highlighted. There have been a lot of changes in the last few years where curators have a much more assertive voice in their work. And I think that's very good. There have been shifts in curatorial practice that have allowed curators to take more responsibility and get more credit for the work that they do, which I think is actually really great. One will often now see a curatorial credit on a didactic panel or an introductory panel in an exhibition, whereas even just a few years ago, you might not have seen that. So that's been an interesting change in curatorial practice. So I know that you write for your curatorial purposes, but you also have written for magazines and things outside of the art world. So tell us a little bit about the types of writings that you do other than art-related writings and how that came about as well. Writing has always been a part of my world. When I first was making my early mature work as an artist, if that makes any sense. I guess what I mean by that is that one might be very creative through childhood and into high school. And then in art school, it can be a very experimental time. And I think many artists in art school have a moment where they hit on their voice. Until that moment, everything else was an exercise, technical exercises, learning skills, understanding the basics of aesthetics, the basics of different techniques. And then that voice comes in and then it's a moment of really understanding this is who I am as an artist. So that's what I mean by a mature type of gesture in, in making art. So my earliest gesture of that type was text-based. I was making a lot of drawings with words. And this came directly from my work as a musician as well. So I had always played music from being an early child all the way through my life. And in my mid-teens, I I trained as an opera singer. So my voice was my primary instrument. I learned guitar at a certain point along the way and did a lot of songwriting, both solo and with collaborators in some different bands. Writing music and writing song lyrics was something that was in my life before I got serious about being an artist. And so when I did get serious about being an artist, those things dovetailed the type of song, poem, word fragmentation that happens when writing song lyrics really translated into my work as an artist in this way that helped me really assert my own voice as an artist. So visually, I was using words and using letters, exploring what letters are, exploring how words look, and exploring how letters and words and sentences make meaning. And thinking a lot about how language 
tells us about the world in ways that we don't even necessarily know. Language in itself is carrying meaning with it all the time. The writing existed even in my visual art. I then got quite interested in writing about art. I myself was writing a lot about other artists' work because it helped me think through what I liked or didn't like about it or why it confused me or why it made me excited. I was trying to write about my own work as well, which seemed like a kind of ridiculous practice actually because I was also, the drawings were words and then I was writing about the words and so it was this very meta thing. But one of the things that was really lacking in San Francisco at the time was a critical voice around art. The kind of national and international art press hasn't really paid that much attention to art in San Francisco. And my colleagues and I, or my peers and I, who were going to the Art Institute and subsequently remained friends and colleagues, felt kind of frustrated by that. So we actually started our own magazine, and I wrote a lot for that. So there were three of us who, three slash four of us, who co-founded that magazine and ran it. And um, I'm avoiding using the word edited it because <laughs> it actually wasn't edited. And it was it was called the organizers of this publication assume no responsibility for the contents herein. That was the entire title? That was the title. <laughs> and so, for sure, so, we so called a, it the organizers. So a nice, succinct title. Yes, yes. <laughs> Um, I said I liked words, right? <laughs> that magazine was super fun because we essentially would solicit submissions every couple of months. And the requirement for the magazine was just that you go see an art exhibition or maybe you saw a building when you were walking down the street you wanted to write about or a public sculpture. You write about it and you make 200 copies and leave it at our address. And then we assembled all of the essays and distributed them to various outlets, whether it was galleries or bookstores. One of the greatest things about the magazine, I mean, I loved the fact that it was completely unedited. So that was like to me, the greatest part. As but a curator who is essentially an editor of, of art exhibits, you appreciate that your magazine is not at all edited. I really did appreciate that. It was super freeform. It was so open. There just was this openness to it that is quite rare in our culture. So much of what we consume as media has been polished and edited and, and changed and, and so many hands have gone into the making of it, which can be a fantastic thing, of course. But the idea idea that we would just create this very open structure was something that to me just felt so free. Since we were artists, we should just allow this incredibly open platform rather than have an intense process through which the opinions and observations of the writers would be funneled. Not only was the magazine unedited, there were really no parameters for how the page looked that you submitted. So you could use bright pink paper, you could use whatever typeface, you could handwrite it, whatever you wanted. The author could do whatever she or he wanted to do. As long as we had 200 copies at the time of assembly, fine. And we just put it together with a paper clip. And we always had an artist do the cover. And then there would be a letter from the quote unquote editor. And I would often write that, but my colleagues also wrote it. And so that magazine was really great for my own practice as a writer. And during the same time, I did publish a little bit in some alternative magazines, writing about art and music. So writing was always there in my work as an artist and as a musician. I did reviews of bands and records and shows. 
when so when I became a curator, it was very natural to me, and it was really one of the things that was appealing to me about curatorial practice is that I would not just be selecting and presenting artworks, but also interpreting them and articulating my sense of what the arts purpose was, what it meant, why it was important. The way we come together is that an article you wrote specifically about a solo hiking. Oh, yes. Uh, was shared with me from a mutual friend of ours. And so that brought us together. So at some point within this process, you kind of rediscovered the outdoors and backpacking and hiking. And that left such an impression on you that you wrote this particular article. How did that process happen? I was going through a transitional moment in my career. I was very close to leaving California. Because of that, I started looking around and thinking about all the things that I had not experienced in California in all the years that I had lived here. I kind of furiously started trying to go to all these different places and see so much of the landscape of California that I had neglected to over so many years. During that process, I just fell in love with California even more. I felt quite lucky, actually, to not get the job. It was one of these things where it was between me and one other person. And when I was told that the job went to the other person, I felt this tremendous sense of relief. And it made me realize that I really didn't want that job. That's great, right? Because that's what you needed. You might not have noticed that if you hadn't had that moment. Exactly. It's kind of great when failure leads to your success, in a sense. Yes, (laughs) by all means. It really felt like a gift. Because in the process of getting ready to maybe leave California, I had this rediscovery of California. Actually, I shouldn't even call it a rediscovery because I had been on such a kind of single-minded path with my own artwork and my career as a curator that I discovered a lot of California art. And I had traveled to different places around the state, but hadn't really engaged with nature here in the way that I started to at that moment. I started hiking. I call it hiking now, but at the time I was really reluctant to call it that. And I often call myself a walker and I often call my walks walks as opposed to hikes. But I started walking more and more. And as I walked, I felt this need to document the walks and so I started writing, I, I started a blog, which seems so dated now somehow. I don't know when there was like a transition away from blogs and maybe there hasn't been, but I looked at my blog not too long ago and I was like, wow, that looks really quaint. Like it just seems like all of a sudden really outdated. But anyway, it was a great format for me to just self-publish what were essentially diary entries about my walks. I was trying to learn about hiking and about backpacking. I didn't have anyone in my family who had done the types of hikes and backpacking trips that I wanted to take, but I did have some friends who had grown up backpacking, one in Washington, actually both of them in Washington, and they were living here in California. They are both artists and they were really encouraging and helpful, but I was mostly going out by myself. Going on these walks, especially in nature, where there are not the types of distractions that one has when taking urban walks, those walks 
led me to a really intense kind of introspection. And at the same time, as I mentioned, I was trying to learn about safety. So I would go on websites and try to learn about what hiking and backpacking was. And what I found was so unappealing to me. (laughs) Uh, The way hiking was described, the way it was cataloged and documented, I found it to be pretty much both kind of like alienating and boring. Part of it has to do with being a woman and a lot of the writing about being in nature is done by men. And I think that the experience can be really different for women. There also seems to be sort of an expected format and tone of voice for writing about the outdoors that has to do with statistics about how much mileage in how many hours and how much combined elevation gain and loss. These types of statistics and types of outdoor jargon and slang, it it was so uniform. And no matter how many websites and different personal blogs I was looking at, I just kept finding the same, same, same thing. And it was almost always men. And it was almost always this kind of like, dude, I love my new Sportivas. And like, (laughs) I just like crushed this hike, you know, in three hours that usually takes me four and a half, you know, just like stuff like that. It didn't speak to me, but I experimented a lot with that type of voice too. I wanted to write about what I was experiencing. I suddenly had this ambition. I really wanted to be a part of the community and I wanted to be one of the voices. So I think I felt that I needed to conform to the voices that I I was reading and finding. Right. You're the outsider and therefore you're moving into this group. You need to find out what the rules are so you can abide by the rules because that's what you're supposed to do. Right. right. So my instinct was to do that. And when I finally realized that I didn't have to do that, <laughs> I think I became a much better outdoor writer. So I started really writing from this very, very personal place. Like I love to talk about gear. I do that a lot in conversation, but my writing doesn't really focus on it. There's just so so much of that online and in magazines, it just reams of it. You can find millions and millions of words about certain types of rubber on the bottoms of certain shoes and without a doubt, you know, technical <laughs> fabrics and and lightweight this and whatever that. And, and I can definitely have that conversation and really enjoy it. But I just didn't think that I needed to write about it. Again, I just started to write these very personal accounts of what my walking was meaning to me and what it was giving to my life and how it was changing me. And I've just continued to do that and want to do it more. It's something that I think is really valuable. I think that there are a lot of people who want another voice. I think the voice that I was sort of making fun of is fine. It's fine that that's there. But I think that there are a lot of different voices in the outdoors. And it's exciting to see that now more space is being made for those voices. Part of the purpose of this podcast, nature is one of those things that is for everyone. And everyone has a place there. So there is no specific recipe that we all have to abide by. It it should sincerely have as many voices as humanity can with 
withhold. I agree with you. Yeah, <laughs> That's yeah. essentially what I'm saying. <laughs> so we were talking about your writing about the outdoors, but also you were saying how at that time you've kind of took the time to discover California itself and then your walks. So you, you said you like to differentiate. You like to call them walks and not so much hikes. So when did they become hikes or have they? What What's the differentiator for you from your walks versus your hikes? I have a friend who's from the Seattle area. When we first met, we were talking about the outdoors and I think I said the term walk instead of hike. And he quipped that I must be from the East Coast because I said a walk in the woods. And he was saying that being from the West Coast, he would take a hike in the forest. But me being from the East Coast, I would take a walk in the woods. Maybe there's a difference in scale. I'm from a very, very small place. (laughs) And I moved to a very, very big place as an adult. So maybe there's something to do with scale, but I also know that I had a lot of bias when I was younger against outdoorsy pursuits and the whole pretension around them. So the fact that I'm a gearhead now is a very recent development. I had a a lot of disdain for like technical fabrics and trekking poles and hiking and climbing and just like the whole thing. There was something about a stance that I was taking in my 20s that I guess I decided was antithetical to these other people over there who like I'm over here, I'm playing rock and roll music and I'm making art and all these other people over there are doing these outdoorsy things in their like gross polyester t-shirts and now and now you have become the enemy i really have i really have yeah there are certain things that like aesthetically that i now embrace that 20 years ago i would have turned my nose up at for sure there's a whole other like set of epiphanies that led to that but to answer a question because of the fact that i didn't want to see being in the outdoors as a sport I felt like taking a walk was this very casual endeavor done by an amateur after dinner. It's very like civilized and minor. It's not a big production. You don't need to put on boots or anything else. You don't need to take water with you. It's just walking. The other thing about walking is that it's associated with pilgrimage. There's both a seriousness and a casualness to it that just appeals to me in this way that hiking as a term You know, when we say walk and we say hike, we get these images in our mind. You know, when I think hike, I picture, you know, the cover of Outside Magazine and someone in like neon yellow and like a giant camel colored legionnaire's hat with like (laughs) trekking poles and like a blue hydration hose and just like the whole stereotype of the hiker. And I I just like couldn't handle (laughs) handle that for some reason. It's interesting because that's when you when you said you call them walks instead of hikes. My assumption was that because you were kind of new into getting into the activity, you didn't think that what you were doing was, was legitimate, was or legitimate yeah. enough to there consider was a, little a bit hike. Of that so. too, I think. But but I actually I'm anti-authoritarian enough to always <laughs> want to be illegitimate. You know, it's like, and that's one of the things. Like, I will say hiking now just because when I say walking, and someone asks me like, "Oh, how far?" and I say twenty miles, they're like, "What are you talking about? That's not a walk." And so now. I do say hike just because 
of the distances I cover and what and the way I do you, it. You begrudgingly accept. I begrudgingly use the term, and at heart, what I do is walking. You know, it's just walking. Hiking is just walking, <laughs> and and if you want to make it more highfalutin or something or more extreme, there's all kinds of ways you can do that. As we both know, you know, you can fast pack and you can ultralight this and ultra marathon that and whatever. But ultimately, it's all putting one foot in front of the other. So let's talk about some of the places that you started going, because I know, for instance, you recently were on a section of the John Muir Trail and that you have done various other backpacking and long distance and uh, overnight trips. So let's hear about how those walks transitioned into these larger, more committing. Because one of the big differences between like hike hiking versus walking is that commitment. You're suddenly bringing everything along with you and you have a much further distance to cover and you're more responsible for yourself in the end. That's a really important point for sure. I guess there is a turning point that I can identify uh, for myself that came really early on when I was on this like no pun intended journey of becoming the walker I am now as opposed to the walker I was maybe five years ago. I started taking these walks mostly to clear my head trying to figure out where my life was going and they just got longer and longer and there was one day that I had pulled over to take what I intended to be a very short walk. Um, I was in the Topanga area and I just all of a sudden looked up and realized that I had been walking for close to two hours. I didn't have anything with me. I had no water. I basically just had my car key and maybe like my ID in my pocket or something. I had absolutely nothing with me. And it was probably 90 degrees, but I just was so lost in my head and there was nobody else out there. And I looked up and I realized that the sun was starting to be at that very low angle that's so beautiful, especially in the Topanga area where it's like so deserty and dry and it was getting really kind of orange outside and I just had a moment of thinking that it was so irresponsible of me to be out there by myself with nothing and that I should probably take what I was doing a little more seriously and at least bring some water and some basic what I know now as the 10 essentials items with me and so that's really when I started thinking more about, you know, what is this activity that I'm doing? Is it something that is just casual around my neighborhood or is it something where I really need tools and skills and equipment and pretty quickly realized the latter. So I was taking these longer walks, learning about the distinction between walking and hiking. The longer the walks, the more I wanted to just stay out. The kind of next milestone in my evolution, I guess, as a walker was um, on a hike on Mount Wilson. It was in April. I'll always remember that because it was my friend Claude's birthday. Early to mid-April, there was still snow. It was cold up there. Um, When we got to the summit, it was probably 30 degrees. But it was really the longest walk that I had taken to that point, I think. Um, We did the really great loop that starts at Chantry Flats and goes up to the Mount Wilson summit. And then you can kind of come back down through the canyons. It's so beautiful there. And because it was early in the season, there really wasn't anybody else around. And I think there were six of us on this group. And there was this one guy who was there who was a little distant when we all met in the parking lot, super early 
early. It was like six in the morning and he was very distant. He was like, oh, you know, don't mind me. I'm probably going to like shoot ahead and I'm going to probably have to take like the short way back down to the parking lot because I have to go do this other thing this afternoon. And for some reason, this guy really made an impression on me. The minute he said he was going to like shoot ahead, I just decided that I was going to keep up with him the whole time. He didn't know he was challenging you. Oh man. And I didn't know that I wanted to be challenged, (laughs) I guess, either. But it took a lot for me to keep up with him because... I had a desk job, as I do now. I mean, I would sit for 40 hours a week at my desk. I've always been a reasonably fit person, but when you sit 40 hours a week at a desk and suddenly you ask your body to get up at 6 in the morning and start climbing a mountain really fast, (laughs) it's kind of a lot. And especially on Mount Wilson, there's this one last bit. It's the last three miles, really, uh, up to the summit when you really start to climb. You know, it's not that high a mountain. It's less than 6,000 feet. But in that last three miles, you cover almost 2,000 of the feet. It's it's kind of a slog. And, and there was a lot of mud and snow and ice. And so I really kept up with this guy. And we got to the top and I was just wiped. But so so exhilarated and it was freezing cold it just felt amazing and I just felt like I wanted to do that every day and so I went back the next weekend by myself and I did it by myself and that was the first big hike that I really did by myself by that point I had figured out what kind of shoes to wear and had a little first aid kit I finally got a hydration pack which is like (laughs) kicking and screaming I got one and I finally also kicking and screaming got trekking poles funnily enough little side note on that is that I always thought that people carried trekking poles mostly to distribute weight and to try to take some pressure off their knees and a lot of people use them for that but one of my problems that I noticed or one of the limitations of my body is that I get really swollen hands and I noticed that when I used the trekking poles my hands wouldn't get swollen it was so bad that it was prohibitive like it would be so painful that I would have to stop and I would have to put my hands up over my head for a long time and it was so painful but the minute I started carrying trekking poles it was fine so begrudgingly did that but you know (laughs) embraced it because I realized that if I didn't have to stop all the time to take out a water bottle bottle and take a sip of water if I could just take a sip from my little hose and if I didn't have to stop all the time to rest my hands then I could cover a lot more distance in a really short amount of time and that was appealing to me because of the fact that I had a really demanding job and other things in my life that I was doing so I wanted to be able to go and see these incredible places and I started to realize that the more time you can walk the farther away you get from developed areas and therefore the more beautiful things become. So that equation like became apparent to me really quickly. And also the equation of the longer I was out on the trail, the more I just wanted to stay. So finally, I realized I wanted to learn how to do backpacking. And essentially on my first backpacking trip, the minute I came down from it, I started planning a John Muir Trail through hike. That was something that was about a year and a half in the making before I did it. And before I set out on the John Muir Trail, that was in 2013, I had only done three backpacking trips. Each one was either one or two nights. So I was really a beginner, but I was convinced that I had this objective and I was going to do it. And yeah, it was one of the greatest things I've ever done. You were attempting to hike the entire length of the trail. So you were going to through hike the whole thing. And did you say that you didn't, you had to miss a section or something? So what happened in 2013 is that the rim fire was burning in Yosemite. I had mapped out a 14 day through hike of the trail for two weeks the fire 
fire was burning and it was in the northern part of Yosemite and the wind was blowing in such a way that all the smoke was going east. The day before my permit was scheduled, I checked the weather report and the wind shifted. The wind started blowing southwest and filled Little Yosemite Valley with wildfire smoke and there was essentially zero visibility and advisories to basically not do anything. (laughs) They were not evacuating the trail. They were not stopping people from setting out on the trail. But I made a very difficult decision to start (coughs) elsewhere. My permit had me starting in Little Yosemite Valley and then heading south to Mount Whitney. The trail at that point climbs four to 5,000 feet straight out of the valley. The idea of climbing such a strenuous route in that kind of smoke sounded so unappealing to me. That would be terrible. And I had never seen Yosemite Valley. And I was seeing uh, (laughs) webcams that literally were zero visibility. So I thought, what is the point of endangering my health when I'm not even going to be able to see the beautiful scenery? So I started calling around at all the different stops that I would be making on the trail. And I finally, when I called Red's Meadow outside of Mammoth, they said, oh yeah, we've got no smoke here. It's great. So I had a resupply waiting for me there anyway. So essentially I was going to be walking from Yosemite Valley to Red's Meadow to get my first resupply box. So I skipped that whole section, went straight to Red's Meadow, had my friend take the resupply box since I wouldn't be needing it any longer and started at Red's Meadow. So I did 165 miles of the trail from Red's Meadow to Lone Pine. And that was in 2013. So this past summer, uh, just a couple weeks ago, I did, I started out at Red's Meadow and set out to complete the trail. The morning that I set out, I really felt that as an objective, it was not that exciting. (laughs) The whole idea of completing the trail, especially so many years later, it just didn't feel that interesting to me. And of course I did it because I was ready to do it. And my husband was uh, going to meet another friend to climb Mount Emerson. And so I was all set to go. So I did. And once I was out there, I had a really good time. It was especially fun to meet all the folks who were coming southbound. And they were really on their like first and second and third days of their hike. So they were just stoked. It was like so exhilarating for me to think about all the days that these people had ahead of them. Because when you do the JMT southbound, it just gets more and more beautiful every day. And so to see them at this point, you know, between Yosemite and Mammoth, it's beautiful. Of course, it's beautiful. It's the Sierras. But it is nothing compared to like when you get further south, the closer and closer you get to Whitney, it just gets more and more stunning. So it was really fun to meet all these folks who were on their way. And they were, you know, a lot of them were new through hikers. And there were so many solo women. So that was really cool to me too. Because when I went, there were a few, but I was a little bit of an anomaly. I ran across maybe three other northbound solo females. And then there were, I want to say maybe five or six solo women coming southbound that I encountered. That was really cool. So it was really fun just to chat with people. And I got to do Donahue Pass and Island Pass, which are beautiful. But then wildfire smoke started impeding my trail again. And by the time I got to Sunset Camp, which actually is not that far outside of Tuolumne Meadows and only 15 miles away from my goal, I had already been walking in the smoke for like three days. There was a junction. I could either continue towards Little Yosemite Valley, which was going straight towards the fires, or I could take a five mile route out to Tenaya Lake and like get back to my car and just bail. And I chose the latter. And I'm so glad I did because by that 
that point, my body was really breaking down. I was walking super slowly. My eyes were watering. My throat was sore. I had a bloody nose. It just was like overwhelming. And I just thought, again, there's almost zero visibility in the valley. The smoke is crazy. There were there was one fire that they were mitigating, but there were two that they were letting burn for environmental reasons. So it was just getting worse and worse with every step I was taking. You you have been to Yosemite though. I have okay. subsequently. Because yes. this, this should be <laughs> I know. a tragic story if every time you tried to go to Yosemite, the valley caught on fire. fire. I know. Well, what I need to learn too is to like start doing these hikes earlier in the season because this happens more and more sadly every year you know the end of the summer early fall there are more and more and more intense wildfires and you know we're seeing it right now i think i heard this morning on the radio there are 67 wildfires burning in the west and of course the hurricanes that are happening on the other side of the country right now it gets worse and worse every season so i did not finish the john muir trail but i did indeed finish the john muir trail (laughs) i've now decided that that was my i've done it really what i realized on this trip is that i just want to start over again and like do the whole thing again and hopefully be able to do the whole through hike at once well people love to say hike your own hike so you could easily yes. say i hiked my own john muir trail i definitely did twice <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so i want to segue us now because we've talked about a number of things that i think bring us to where we are now how about you tell people where we are sitting right now and why that bears significance to all the things we've been talking about so far so we're sitting in my garage in culver city which is also known as the pangea outdoor supply headquarters i started thinking about pangea when i was doing the jmt or anyway getting ready for the jmt in 2013 i started to fall in love with gear but i am an aesthete and i really want to like the look of things that i use Even if something just needs to function, even if it's a piece of safety gear, I always want it to be the one that appeals to me the most aesthetically. Of course, I want it to be the one that works the best as well. But I'm always looking for things that are both high functioning and aesthetically appealing. You want form and function. I do. You can have both. I believe that they're inextricable. And... I was finding that it was really hard for me to find the gear that I wanted to use at the mainstream stores. I love gear shops in the same way that I love hardware stores. I mean, there's so many cool gadgets. A lot of the times I get fascinated with stuff, even though I don't know its real purpose, I'll wind up buying something and using it for something else entirely. And I wanted to make a store where that was okay. And I wanted to make a store that was, I guess, a little more selective and a little more like accessible. When I go to big gear shops and I confront a wall of 50 different headlamps, my eyes kind of glaze over. And the fact is, there isn't really that much difference between most of them. I was really longing for a store that brought together the best things, the stuff that I like the most. And so I decided I would make that store. On another side note that's related, I was turned on to the style of backpacking called ultralight backpacking really early on. And I feel so lucky that my friend Jonathan handed me Ray Jardine's book, Beyond Backpacking, when he did, because I truly believe that 
I wouldn't be a backpacker if I hadn't found that style of backpacking. And not only did the ultralight style really work for me because it's inherently lightweight nature allowed me as a really small person who's small in stature to be able to carry a light pack. Um, it made backpacking much more comfortable and accessible to me. And it makes you less likely to destroy your body. Yes, exactly. You know, the irony of it is that conventional backpacking wisdom says that ultralight backpacking is not for beginners. I do not believe that. And I think that if you have the kind of comfort level with your gear that's required, you will succeed at being an ultralight backpacker and you will probably become a lifetime backpacker more readily than if you're using traditional gear, which will grind down your knees, give you blisters, give you rashes and bruises on your shoulders and hips. We're so lucky because there has been so much advancement in technical gear in the last couple years <laughs> that you can really get lightweight stuff for a lot less money than you could even in 2012 when I was first putting my kit together. But anyway, that philosophy of ultralight backpacking was interesting to me as a philosophy and a methodology. And it just so happened that the gear was also interesting to me aesthetically. The gear that is made for ultralight backpacking and hiking is a lot simpler than what you might find for a conventional backpack, let's say. A conventional backpacking pack is going to have like a lot of daisy chains and zippers and adjustable this and detachable that. Loops for your ice axes exactly. that you may never own. Which you'll get probably on an, a UL pack too, but the whole idea of the ultralight pack is that there isn't anything on it that's unnecessary. So if you do need to carry an ice axe, there might be one loop, but you might need to add your own strap to it. But there's no reason to have that strap there if you're not going to use an ice axe or some other thing that you need to attach with it, because all that does then is add weight to your pack. And basically every ounce counts. Every ounce adds up that if you're going to be walking for anywhere from three to 10 hours a day, you know, that's a lot of weight that you're carrying on your back. So I really loved the stripped down aesthetics of UL stuff. The ethics of it, the aesthetics of it, they really came together for me in practice, but they also inspired me to want to make a store that would offer UL gear and offer advice about ultralight backpacking and really encourage people to check it out and also encourage people to use their stuff even when they're at home. So in my apartment, you'll find a titanium kettle on my stove most of the time. I use that because I love how it looks. And there's no reason for it to sit in a box with, you know, my stuff that's waiting for the next hike if I can use it inside too. I really want Pangea to be an expression of a very specific kind of hiking, a specific philosophy of walking. But I also want it to encourage people to experiment with using things across platforms or activities. There's no reason to not use your camping stuff at home. And there's no reason to not bring your stuff from home camping. I mean, when I go car camping, I bring Pendleton blankets. You know, I love to use cast iron when we're car camping. You know, I like that kind of crossover. And so I want Pangea to be the kind of place where even if you're not a really experienced backpacker that you might want to shop at Pangea. What I'm hearing is that you started a, a shop so you could curate gear. Yeah. Essentially. 
You yeah. could parse down what you thought was valuable and make your exhibit exactly. <laughs> for Pangea. And, and looking at your website, it's very apparent to me immediately that you are a person that works in the art world because of the way the site is set up and the way the photography is done for each item. It very much feels like a kind of curated museum look at gear. Thank you. I really want the website to be a place of discovery. There are no menus. There are only images and logos. What I really want is for the main page to feel like content itself, that it's beautiful to look at as a grid of images. And then if you're inclined to click on any of those images, you'll find an item for sale at the end of one click, or you might find an essay at the end of another click, or you might find a page that is describing the 10 essentials that is something a little more functional and how-to. So I really want the site to be a place of discovery. There's not a menu where it's going to be, you click on men's t-shirts, <laughs> you know, long sleeve, short sleeve. It's, it's not that. You're not going to click on, you know, women's sleeping bag, down synthetic. That's not ever the way it's going to be. There are plenty of gear shops where you can already do that. And I'm glad that those are there, but I want Pangea to be something kind of different. What do you want to be? Because there are tons, there are huge there's backcountry and moose jaw and all these huge, some of them would probably argue they're not huge, but compared to, to people like us, they're huge companies with enormous amounts of gear available for purchase. You, you don't want to be that. So where do you want to see yourself in that group of outdoor retailers? I guess what I would like to do is create a space where a community sort of develops around it that is really specific to Pangea that the customer who comes to Pangea will be sort of a self-selected person who's looking for something that is a little different. I have no doubt that I'll never be able to compete with those stores, and that's fine with me. I'm not going to have big Labor Day sales, <laughs> and I'm not going to have deals all the time on stuff, but hopefully I'll be able to grow this community um, of people who are interested in finding the brands and items that I carry because those brands are also on the small side. I'm really interested in how small brands come up through the outdoor industry. The first time I went to outdoor retailer, it was a real eye opener to see how giant this industry is. The outdoor retailer trade show is just overwhelmingly giant. In the art world, we have art fairs, which are a similar kind of thing. But by comparison, even in the biggest art fairs, there are probably less than 200 galleries representing their artists. At Outdoor Retailer, the last time I went, I think there were over 1,300 brands. It's huge. As a person who has gone to San Diego Comic-Con many, many times, I've only been to the, to the OR show once, but it is definitely on that same level in size and scope and almost as many people there. So yeah, it is an enormous industry and I forget what the numbers are, but I believe it's in the billions. Now. Oh yes, billions and billions of dollars. It's an incredible industry and I feel really excited to be part of it actually. But at Outdoor Retailer, what you're seeing are the same brands that you see in all of the gear shops. There are the five to 10 really major brands and then there are all the rest of the mid-level and small brands. But then there are all the brands that are working out of garages just like this one and small warehouses and small workshops and factories making kind of 
like DIY gear. That was the other thing that I really connected with when I first learned about UL backpacking is this very experimental do-it-yourself mentality that I really connected with because of my background in music and art. As I said earlier, it's like there wasn't a lot of art writing in San Francisco, so we made our own magazine. When I was playing music, we didn't have a record label, so we just put out our own records. And I love that hikers and backpackers, they're doing this really specific activity. The development of gear has so much to do with one person going on a hike, realizing that their shoulder strap wasn't working properly. So they went home and started hacking into it, taking out stuffing, putting in some other kind of stuffing, reshaping it on their sewing machine, and then taking it out again, seeing if that works. If it works, then they maybe put it into production for a friend. The friend likes it, and then they start making more. There's this evolution of gear at this very small level that happens to be this ultralight style quite frequently. I feel really glad to be part of that. Like that's what I really want to bring to customers through Pangea because those other companies you mentioned, they're going to carry Patagonia and Columbia and Black Diamond and whoever else. But I want to carry Yama Mountain Gear and I want to carry Gossamer Gear and these small companies, a lot of whom are making most of their stuff in this country, sourcing a lot of their stuff from this country, which I think is really interesting too, designing and manufacturing in the same country. They're also looking for when they do need to manufacture or source materials from abroad, they're looking at sustainable practices. And those are things that mean a lot to me as well as a consumer. So as someone who's going to sell stuff to other consumers, I really want to put those types of products into the marketplace and foster that kind of business practice because I really believe that will have a reverberating effect over time. So how does a person go about perusing the gear that you have available and or purchasing that gear from you? Right now, I have my website, which is PangeaOutdoorSupply.com. And as I mentioned, the website is really meant to be experienced. So I hope people will enjoy looking for products on the site and finding the essays that are there too. On Friday night, September 15th, there will be an opening of a shop called Days uh, in Hollywood. And Days can be found at days-la.com. Days is a really interesting store and I'm part of the reason I'm excited to be involved with it is because the founder of the store, Nora Beckman, has a really visionary idea about what retail can be. Her store changes every few months. So it's in the same storefront in Hollywood, but Every time she changes the theme, she changes the way the store looks. There might be a different color scheme. There'll be different products for sale. And she mixes fashion with gear and with art and functional design, as well as periodicals and books. She also makes sure that the space is really community oriented. So she has a a really robust series of events that she does at the space. This summer, she had a whole series of ping pong tournaments. Um, She has dinners. She has poetry readings. So she brings people together 
around objects of design and art to talk about ideas and enjoy each other's company. So I'm really excited that Pangea will have a presence at Days this fall and through the holidays. It's a way for people to come and learn about the products that I'm selling and to learn about Pangea, learn about ultralight backpacking and to do so in a context that's a little bit different actually a lot different than going to a typical gear shop. It's interesting because what you just described sounds like an art exhibit, but for commerce. Yes. So it's funny how your life always brings you back in some capacity back into the, there's some definitely recurring themes with you. It does. And I love that Nora's, Nora's whole way of approaching retail is a lot more like an art gallery than a typical store. The fact that she does change the store aesthetically and that, and that it evolves thematically, primarily with the seasons is really inspiring to me. And I think that in a time when there's a lot of talk about the internet and e-commerce overshadowing brick and mortar retail, there are so many interesting things going on in small shops, even like this garage. I have some other friends and colleagues who are doing really interesting experimental stores. I don't think it's a backlash. I think it's just that Amazon and Google and whoever else have really actually opened space for people who are really creative to make business opportunities for themselves. And I find that really exciting. And I know that's where I want to shop. I mean, of course, I buy stuff off Amazon when I need to. I really want to go and buy things that are made by people who live down the street and sold by that person's neighbor. That a really exciting thing to me that feels pretty revolutionary, but also really basic and really simple. It's funny in that it's revolutionary in the sense that it's a return to the past. Right. I think so too. There is an irony there. Yeah. So it's a return to something that feels kind of small town, but I think that it's also very forward looking in that everybody needs to make their way in the world and everybody needs to express themselves in the world. Giant corporations, they don't have anything to express. They have a bunch of stuff to offer us that we can pay money to buy, but they're corporations. It's really fun to go to a store that's operated by a person that has a creative vision. And that creative vision brings together stuff that is made by other folks who also have a creative vision. And being able to be with those people in the same space, whether it's just through the objects that they've made, or if it's like through an actual activity, those things I think are really valuable and, and basically will never stop being valuable. Nora also has a club called Hiking Club LA. So professionally, she has this background in fashion and in retail. And as a hobby and a pastime, she's a hiker herself and loves to bring people together to do group walks and explore Southern California a couple times a month. I love that she's bringing her life as a hiker into her store and partnering with Pangea to do it. Again, it's like a really nice kind of way to dovetail these interests and it's also really personal. You know, it's like a really heartfelt gesture. So the, the names we choose for, for things are important, right? There's a lot of value in the names that we pick for things. So why did you choose to name your company after a supercontinent? <laughs> I wanted it to be clear that Pangea was about being on land. So, <laughs> so I really wanted... I, I want Pangea to really maintain a focus of hiking and backpacking. When my stepfather, Frank Pasquale, suggested this name Pangea, it just 
sparked in my mind. It just seemed like the perfect name. I was joking with somebody the other day about how if all the continents were to come back together, the most epic uh, long distance hiking trail uh, would be made, you know, across all of the the one giant supercontinent. Maybe circumnavigating it, maybe going down the center, I don't know. But it would be a whole other challenge for thru-hikers to conquer. So it's wishful thinking, the world's <laughs> largest single sustained hiking trail. It's sort of evocative, too. So I'm an unabashed, huge fan of Patagonia and Yvonne Chouinard. Of course, they're, they're, I can argue like the negative side of Patagonia and Yvonne Chouinard's kind of business model as well. But like I think that as a company, it's so fascinating what they do and what their philosophy is and what their mission is. So I have found... Yvonne Chouinard's ideas about being an outdoors person and about being a business person to be really inspiring and informative over the years. And so when I was thinking about a name, I really wanted a name that would be just as evocative as Patagonia is. Patagonia is, it's a real place but it's so hard to get to. It's so far away. It's so windy. It's so high. There's this kind of romance and toughness about it. When my stepfather suggested Pangea as a name, I immediately knew that he was right. And I was so excited that he suggested it. It wasn't until I was working with a graphic designer on making a logo type that I realized that Pangea and Patagonia actually have, they both have a P, a G and three A's. (laughs) It was really weird. It was weird, but I stuck with it because I feel like it's different enough, but it was like this moment of realizing the formal similarities between the two words. Hey, Patagonia is just one little place amongst the enormous amongst place that is Pangea. Amongst the entirety of Pangea. It's true. <laughs> so before we finish up the show and wrap everything up, I'd like to give you a chance to tell people where they can find all your stuff. So where they can find the Pangea website, where they can find your past blogs or any other things online that you want to share. So Pangea is online at PangeaOutdoorSupply.com and Pangea in person will be available at Days in Hollywood in California. And the website for Days is Days-LA.com. So you can find all the information about days there and stay tuned. Sign up for the mailing list on my website. Uh, I also have an Instagram account, which is Pangea Outdoor Supply. And I like to post images of my trips and other folks' trips. And I like to post images when I have new products. And I like to use Instagram to let people know about things going on in the store. So that's a good place to stay tuned. Yeah, I think that's about it. But the mailing list is a great thing to be part of because that's probably the main way that you You'll learn about any events that we're having at the garage and any pop-up events that I'm doing. There will be one, another pop-up after days. I'll be doing something in 2018 too uh, in Mid-City here in Los Angeles. And I hope to do things in other cities too. So if anyone is interested in collaborating, please let me know. And the way that I like to always end this show is for the guests to be able to just either leave people with some final thought of their own or to discuss something that maybe we missed or that you just 
need to get off your chest? Well, one of the things that I thought about a lot on my recent trip on the John Muir Trail, and then I came down from the trail and went back up into the Eastern Sierras outside of Bishop. During that week in the mountains, I thought a lot about being a solo hiker and being a solo female hiker. And I really believe that the community of hikers is a community that we, as a global community, can really be inspired by and learn a lot from. The community of hikers is a community in which people help each other and look out for each other, while at the same time is made up of folks who are incredibly self-sufficient and incredibly motivated. That's something that, especially now, in a social climate that feels simultaneously more divided than ever, but also kind of coming together and rallying around voices that have been marginalized for a long time. I think that the community of hikers has a lot to offer in that latter effort to make the world a place where it's safe for anyone to go walking. And that is one of the most important things to me about what I do as a walker. Hopefully, especially as a solo female walker, I can model a world that I really want to live in, where I don't have to be afraid to be by myself in the wilderness or anywhere else for that matter. So that's one of the things that I'm thinking most about lately when it comes to hiking that it isn't just about tuning out and going to the wilderness, but it also is a way, it's, it's a worldview that we can all bring back into our lives wherever we live every day. So those would be my parting words. All right, and with that, I will thank you for letting me come hang out in your garage, which is surprisingly a lot cooler than I would expect <laughs> it to be inside a garage in the summertime. Nice breeze today. <laughs> yeah, we got very lucky with that. So thank you very much. Thank you so much. Pangea Outdoor Supply is currently celebrating its one-year anniversary, and that means that Corina will have various things on sale. You can find out about those by signing up for her mailing list on the Pangea website, or you can follow along on the Pangea Instagram or Facebook page. And where would you find those things, you may ask? Well, that is a very good question. You should head over to gogetoutside.com slash podcast. Look for this, episode 56, Karina Peepon, and there you will find all the things you always find. Our show notes for the show, photographs of Karina and places she's visited, and all of the links mentioned here in the show, including those links to PangeaOutdoorSupply.com, the mailing list, the Instagram, the Facebook page, amongst many other things. And while you are perusing the internet, feel free to get in touch with us here at the show. You can do that a number of ways. You can send us an email, go at butcherbirdstudios.com or drop us a voicemail at 818-925-0106. And as always, please do us a favor. Go to your podcast purveyor of choice, subscribe to the show, rate the show, review the show, and please, please share it with someone who you think would enjoy it. I'd like to give another thanks to Griffin Davis for editing this episode and future episodes. And speaking of future episodes, next time on the show, filmmaker, co-founder of ButcherBird Studios, world traveler, ball of never-ending energy and ambition, and walking calamity, Stephen Calcote. 
next time on the show, November 1st. See you then. <laughs>